guys. And I thought I was hearing myself. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here today. Be sure, if you haven't already, brothers and sisters, to say hi to Alan's sister and brother-in-law as they're visiting us today. So be sure you give them a hug and give them a love and let them know that it's great to have them here with us today. So with that, uh, I'm in contact with Pastor Joe Taylor at South Reno Baptist for August 20th for the baptism. So if you're being baptized on August 20th, don't plan a camping trip. So, Or if you do, be sure there's a lake and we will drive up and do it at the lake. So uh, I should get a definite confirmation on that this week, Lord willing. So, you know, what a, what a joyous time that we're going to be baptizing people. What a, what a great thing. So, all right, well, let's pray and then we will uh, dig in. Father, thank you that we can come into your presence, Lord, with joy and come in and worship you and sing praises to you. Father, just a foretaste of what will take place when we are home with you, where we will be in constant praise of you and in constant worship of you always, as we will be around the throne and we will see the Lamb who was slain for us. Father, may our worship be pleasing and a joy to you. Father, thank you that we can come and worship you in our singing and we can worship you in our giving and now father we can come and worship you in the preaching of your word so lord i just ask now father that you would convict us where we need to be convicted that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged that your spirit would come father and accompany the preaching of your word that father i would be eclipsed and your son would be seen and the glory of your word would be seen and the majesty of your word would be seen. And the sufficiency of your word would be rooted deep within our hearts, Father. So we thank you for this. And just ask that you do an amazing work in our life, Lord. In your name, amen. So over the last five weeks, we went through what we call the doctrines of grace. Where we saw our depravity, our radical depravity, we see God's sovereign love in electing us. We see Christ atoning for his bride. We see the perseverance of the saints. We see God's grace in drawing us to himself. And those were the doctrines that were preached at the first great awakening. Those were doctrines that were preached by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And those were doctrines that set the Americas on fire for who God is. But they also were accompanied by what we call the solas, the five solas. And that's what we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at is the five solas, the five solas being sola scriptura and sola gratia and sola fida and sola Christus and Soli Deo Gloria. I always have a trouble with that one, is what it is. So those are the five solas we're going to look at. 
Today, what we're going to look at is Sola Scriptura. That's why I'm up here, Sola Scriptura, part one. Is the Bible enough? That's the question I want to pose to all of us. Is this book that we hold in our hands, is it enough? It is, absolutely. It is enough. It is the Word of God. It is not a word of God, it is the word of God. Now, am I discounting that we need any other books? No, if you walked into our little library here, you're going to see all kinds of books on theology, you're going to see other Bibles in there that have different studies in them, you're going to see Christian living books. Are those books good to have? Sure, they're good to have, because they bring out points in our life that we don't have. But, but, do those books trump these trump this book and that answer is no this is what god has given us is his word sola scriptura scriptura means or uh, sola means alone scripture alone within our salvation it is scripture alone that is what brings people to salvation is scripture alone so I want to look at three points today as we look at Scripture. The first point I want to look at is this. The authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Is this the authority? Is it the sole authority? Is the Bible the authority in your life? That's the question we have to ask. Or is it a book of just good suggestions? Jesus was just a good teacher. He recommends that these are the things that we do. I have a customer that comes in, and he says the ten suggestions. But we call it the ten commandments. This is the authority of Scripture. Listen to what its purpose is, right? Listen to Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. This is God's word that goes out from his mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and, it shall, and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Because it is the authority of God. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the authority of God that we proclaim. When we tell someone that they are a sinner in need of Christ, and Christ is their redeemer, and Christ has come and died for sin, we come with the authority of Scripture. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the deutimus, the dynamite of God unto salvation. Right? It is the power. It is the gospel. Where do we find the gospel? In the written word. That is where it is. It is the authority. Isaiah verse 48 says it this way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Luke 16 says this. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Martin said that it's the second most published book in the Americas, wherever, or in England, wherever, is the Pilgrim's Progress. What's the first? It's the Bible. Why? Because it's the authority. It is the Word of God, right? It will stand forever. The Lord may not return in our lifetime, and we will die, and we will pass on, and we will go to glory, and yet the Word will stand. It will remain forever because it is the authority. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, that's the whole thing, right? That's the argument. That's the historical argument. It's a book written by men. Yes, it is a book written by men under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying here to the Thessalonians, you accepted it for what it really is. It is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, do you accept that for what it is? Is this just a book of fairy tales and all this stuff that the historical people say? Or do you believe it really is what it is, that it is the word of God that was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Is it the authority in your life? Do you know what the authority of the word of God means? It means that Dick and Martin and myself are not the authority. It means that there's no elders, there's no pastors anywhere that are the authority. That doesn't, it means that the seminary professors, with all their high, lofty education, they are not the authority. It doesn't mean that, it means, it does, it, this means that John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul and all these guys we listen to and the gentleman that's doing the Pilgrim's Progress, they are not the authority. But the word of God is the authority. It is the sole authority that governs every part of our lives. There's not one part of our life that this book does not govern as a Christian. It is our life source. In Hebrews it says what? That the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Every one of the Christian living books that you have in your bookshelf is not living. This is a book that is living, and it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Why do people not want the word preached? Because it pierces the soul. It gets to the marrow in the bones. That's what God's word is designed to do. That is what it is designed to do. That is Mr. Bunyan being under conviction for 18 months of his sin. It's the word of God as he reads the book, piercing his very soul. When you read, does the authority of the word of God pierce your soul? It is the authority. Secondly, the scripture is inerrant. It is inerrant. That means there is no errors in it. Archaeology proves this. We can watch all kinds of archaeology shows. Well, did Goshen really exist? Yep, Goshen really existed. They found it. You know? Did uh, uh, Pilate really exist? Yep, they, they found Pilate. Right? Archaeology proves 
that the Word of God is inerrant. There's no errors in the Word of God. Listen to what this says. The Holy Scriptures, the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is the Word of God, verbally inspired, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. Does anybody know where that comes from? Who can tell me in Faith Bible where that comes from? Does anybody know? Well, maybe you should look, because that comes from our statement of faith. I took that off of our website on what we believe. That is what this church believes. You should know where it comes from. Maybe you should take a peek at the website and see what we believe. Because <laughs> that's what we believe. That's what was, that what was written. That we believe that the word of God is inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God breathed. Now, where do we get this from? Where does that statement come from? Well, it comes from scripture, right? It comes from scripture. Listen to Psalms uh, 12.6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is where that statement comes from. The inerrancy of the word. Did you guys pick up that? The word of the Lord are pure. Every word of God proves true. All the scripture is breathed out by God. It is God breathed. Jesus in John 17, 17 says this in his prayer, sanctify them in the truth. We are to be sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. Now, if you want a detailed perspective on the word of God, just read Psalms 119. It will talk about everything about the word of God your emotions, your affections, your thoughts, your mind. Everything is involved in Psalms 119. But listen to verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. That means all of it, all of God's word from Genesis to Revelation is all truth. It is true. There is nothing infallible in it. There is no errors in it. When we read from the Gospel of Matthew to the end of the Gospel of John and we see Jesus' life, what the Gospel writers wrote was true of who Jesus is. It is true. The sum of your word is truth. So God's word, therefore, is the authority in our life and it is the inerrant, infallible word that we can trust and we can rest our lives on. But here comes the question. Yeah, Mark, I get that. I get that the word of God is the authority, and I get that the word of God is infallible and it's inerrant. But is it sufficient? Is it really sufficient? Do we, is that really all we need? Because, you know, we live in a different culture now, right? We live in a different culture than Paul lived, and Peter lived, and John lived, and Jesus lived. Hey, man, there was just animals when Adam and Eve were there, right? Is it, is it really sufficient for today? Or do we have to bring in gimmicks? Or is it sufficient for today? 
That's the question we have to ask. So, the scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient in these areas, in the revelation of God. Psalms 19, starting with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We see what the word of God does. What is it sufficient for? It's sufficient to revive the soul. Why are your why is my soul downcast? Put your trust in God. It revives the soul. That's what it does. The word of God revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. Our wisdom is found within the scriptures. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. From who? The wisest man ever. You want to know the difference between a righteous life and a wicked life? Read Proverbs. He's clear in what that is. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. How many times have you sat down and you read scripture and you went away and you're like going, wow, man, my heart's rejoicing. This is what the Word of God does for us, brothers and sisters. We don't need to watch a TV show. We need to be reading the Word. That's where it's rejoicing the heart. It's reviving the soul. It's not only making us wise and simple, but what's it do? It enlightens the eyes. It's enlightening to us. We open our eyes, right? Psalms 119 says, open your word so that I may see the wonders of it. Is that how you start your prayer? Do you start your prayer every morning when you do your devotions? Lord, open your word to my heart that I might see the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the excellencies of it. That you would use your word to revive my soul, enlighten my eyes, make me wise, and stir my heart. Because it is sufficient for that. The word of the Lord is satisfying. It is satisfying. It's not boring. Oh, I sit down and I go to read Mark and I get like two, page, two verses in and I'm tired. It's boring. It's not boring. It's satisfying. It's satisfying. Listen to the, to the end of that Psalms 119. Um, where am I? 10 and 11. Or Psalms 19, 10, and 11. More, the word is, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The word of God, it is sufficient because it satisfies, right? It's uh, the desires, right? The desired more than gold, more than money, more than any amount of money you got in your bank, more than any amount of money that's in the stock market, more than any amount of money that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett has. That's what God is saying here. His word is to be desired more than any of that. Why? Because it's sweeter than any of that. 
It's sweeter than honey. We've all tasted honey. Honey is sweet, especially when it comes off of the honeycomb. It's sweet, and that's what he's saying, that his word is sweet. It is good to the taste of the believer. It is sufficient. It satisfies us. It warns us. And in them there's great reward. This is the satisfying work of the Scripture. This is what it does. In this one book on your shelf, this book that is on your shelf or on your coffee table, is it the one place that you come to find all your heart's desire? Or is it the one book that collects the most dust? Which one is it? It's one or the other. So not only is the word sufficient in revealing God or being satisfying, but the word is sufficient in fighting temptation. The word is sufficient in fighting temptation. Matthew 4. Listen, this is Jesus' temptation, right? Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'm hungry after 40 minutes. Forget 40 days, right? But Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, notice what he says, if, if, he challenges him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answers back with what? Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word it comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on this pinnacle of the temple and said to him, again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Did we put that up? Did you pick it up? Who's he tempting? He's tempting Jesus. If you're the son of God, Jesus answers him this way. Satan, it's written, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. Oh, wow. Guess what Satan is? He is Jesus' devil. He is created by him. And he looks at him and he says, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. Because I am still your God. Do we ever pick that up? Jesus knows exactly who he is. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Oh, oh, Satan, do not tempt the Lord your God. Wow, stunning. Should make the hair on our back of our neck stand up. She does, but it doesn't stop there because the devil's not done. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It is the same power that's in in our own lives, brothers and sisters. The word, when we are tempted, where do we go? We go to the word. Oh, but I don't always have my Bible with me. 
Oh, but what does Psalms 119 tell you and I to do? It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up, I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's where the word resides. It resides in your heart. If you're out and about and you're being tempted, you don't have to pull out your Bible to find a verse. Have it in your mind. Have it in your head. Have it stored in your heart that I might not sin against you. Right? That's what Joseph did in Potiphar's house. When Potiphar's wife was making advances on Joseph and Joseph ran and he says, how can I do such a thing and sin against my God? Joseph didn't pull out the Torah. He said, what do I do? He knew this was sin. Run, flee. That is what we are to do. And the word of God is sufficient for the time we live in today. It is sufficient for the time we live in today. When we went through 1 Timothy and we preached through 1 Timothy, what was one of the main themes that we saw? Paul was always telling Timothy to do what? To preach sound doctrine. To preach sound doctrine. Well, why do we need to preach sound doctrine? Why do we need to, to preach the truth? Why do we need to preach that scripture is sufficient? Well, this is why. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of money. Whew, glad that that's not happening now. But we see that now, don't we? And it's blatant. It's in our face. There's no shame of it. It is there. The world, the flesh, and the devil is what we constantly fight against. We need to know that the word is sufficient. The scary verse here is verse 5. It says this, Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. These are men in the pulpit. These are men in leadership. These are men writing books. These are people that we think are saved. Why? Because they have the appearance of godliness. They're camouflaged in. Right? But Paul says this, but they deny its power. And he says, avoid such people. So we're to do, we're to avoid such people. It is the preaching of sound doctrine that Paul encourages Timothy to hold to, and it is the preaching of sound doctrine that we are to hold to. The word is sufficient for evangelism. The, ver the word is sufficient for evangelism. In Acts 2, Peter preached a sermon in which the Lord saved, what, 3,000 people. He preached a sermon. He preached the word. Notice what he didn't do. It wasn't accompanied by a band. It was, there was no coffee bars. There was no enticing music to draw them in. There was no kid programs, no youth groups, no Sunday schools. I'm not saying those are bad. But what was it? What was it that saved 3,000 people? It was the proclamation of the gospel. It was the word preached. That's what it was. That is what pierced them to their souls to where they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, believe and be baptized. That's what he says. 
right? There was nothing that. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 Peter 1, 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Why are you saved? Because it's through the living and abiding word of God. It's because the gospel is preached. Jesus preached the gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. Jesus preached repentance. Brothers and sisters, when we go out and we preach the gospel, we need to do what? Not preach God has a plan for you and a good life. No, we go out and we preach repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. We are 2,000 years closer to Christ coming back than we were when he was here. The message should be even more important to those in your lives that are loved ones. It is sufficient for evangelism. Miracles do not convert people. We have to understand that too. Miracles do not convert people. Luke 16, 27, 28. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. This is Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man dies and he's in hell and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man says this. He's begging, beg you, Father Abraham, to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But what does, what, does the, what does Luke say? He says, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. That's why he didn't send. Why? Because what? They had Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have the word of God. Brothers and sisters, it's the same in our lifetime. The tomb's empty. And this world is filled with unbelievers. The tomb is empty. God's word is sufficient for evangelism. It is sufficient for evangelism. The word is sufficient for sanctification. I'm going to skip the Romans verses, okay? The word is sufficient for sanctification, for making us holy. The word is effective in making us holy. Listen to Romans 6, 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. This is what we are to do. Our instruments, we're to present them as righteousness, right? How do we do that? We read the word. We know how to present ourselves, right? How do we do that? Well, Ephesians 4 tells you how to do it, right? Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been, of which you've been called. Okay, so now, Paul, how do I walk? How do I walk in this manner that you called, that Jesus has called me to? How do I use my instruments for righteousness? Paul says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. That's how you do it. And then he continues on in the rest of chapter 4 and the rest of chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6 to tell you how to do it. 
Second Corinthians says this, brothers and sisters, concerning your sanctification. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. You're brand new. You've been regenerated. You've been made brand new. You're not the person you used to be. Your desires, your affections, your emotions, they're all different. They're all changed because you are a changed person. You are holy and righteous and blameless in God's eyes. And that's what the word tells us. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The word is sufficient to make us holy. The word is sufficient in evangelism. The word is sufficient for guidance. For guidance. The word is sufficient for guidance. 2 Peter 1.3. I thought about this, so I'm just going to go to it. If you want to go to it, you can. 2 Peter 1.3 says this. Oh, that's 1 Peter. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That sums it all up. The Bible is sufficient for guidance. We do not need a self-help book. We have a self-help book. It is sufficient in guiding our lives. Now, is there things that come up in our lives that the Bible doesn't answer? Yes. But the Bible tells us how we should approach those things. Right? Like a job. Did I pray to be a barber and I heard this little voice in my head that says, yes, Mark, you're to be a barber? No, I didn't. And if I did, I should go to Scripture to see if that's what God said because this is God's Word, not the little voice in my head. There's no word in there that said I was to be a barber. But it does guide me in areas of, is there sin there? Is there this here? Is that there? The Bible guides us in those things. But we know that there is guidance in the Bible, right? We know that there is. Think of the Ten Commandments. This is guidance, right? That we have no other gods before Him, that we do not worship an image of Him, that we do not misuse His name, that we keep the Sabbath holy, that we honor our parents, children in here, that you honor your parents. This is, look at me, you children in here. That means you too, Marcus. Look at me. This means if you want to be pleasing in God's eyes, you honor your mom and dad. You honor them and you obey them unless they force you to sin. They know what's best for you. Look, I've had two kids. It's tough. It's tough being a parent. But honor your parents. Because why? Because it's pleasing to God. That is why. We honor our parents. We do not murder or commit adultery or steal, lie, or covet. These are not suggestions. These are commands. This is what makes God happy. This is God's will. But not only that, Jesus commands us to do what? In our guidance, in our lives, the word commands us to love one another. This is my commandment, John 15, 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is God's will for our lives within this church, within this church body, that we love one another with a sacrificial love like Jesus loved us with. 
That is how we love each other. Are we going to do that perfectly? Absolutely not. We, not might, we might not even do it 10%, but it doesn't negate that that's what we are to do. We are to do that, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Notice how Jesus puts that. He says, this is how I've loved you, now you love others that way. Jesus doesn't say, you love everybody else in the congregation so that I will love you. He says, I loved you, now you love people like I love you. Wow, what a trailblazer. What a God we have. That Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And he never asks us to do something that he hasn't equipped us to do. He's equipped us to love each other as he has loved us. It's our own selfish, sinful desires that we don't do that. But nevertheless, we are to love one another as you've loved us. Uh, Paul tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world. This is guidance, right? Listen to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. This is guidance, brothers and sisters. This is what the scripture is telling us. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be part of this world. Don't play into the world's games. Don't fall into the world's thoughts. Because you know why? We're not of this world. We're passing through, right? Peter says that we're aliens that are passing through. We're not to be conformed to this world, but what are we to do? But we are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are you to be transformed? How do I know, Lord, that I'm to be transformed? What am I to be transformed into? It's the word of God, right? This is what transforms us. That word to be transformed is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It's where we get our word from. We're to be transformed, what? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In guidance, we see that God's word is sufficient to guide us in his will. It is also sufficient to guide us in our prayer life, how we are to pray. Do you ever have a problem? Do you ever sit down and, and sit there and you're like, man, I just don't know what to pray for. I don't know what to pray for. Hey, open up the book of Psalms. Pray through the Psalms. Pray those things. Pray through the Psalms. I mean, really, look at it. Go to Psalms 1 if you got your book. If you got your Bible, flip over to Psalm 1. Flip over to Psalm 1. What a great prayer. Psalm 1. To pray Psalm 1. Lord, Lord, I want to be the blessed man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. But I, Lord, Lord, I want my delight to be in your law and I want to meditate on it day and night. Right there. Pray that. Pray that for me. <laughs> if you want to know how to pray for me, pray that for me, right? And then let's just continue it. Father, I want to be a tree that's planted by the streams of your word that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaves do not wither. That's what we want to be, right? We want to be this tree that is rooted in God's word that we delight in day and night. 
that bears fruit. And it's not chaff, and it doesn't wither away. Go to the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. They're brilliant. They'll revive your soul. You'll find rejoicing in your heart. But Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We are to pray without ceasing. We're always to be praying. We're always to be talking to God. God is always to be on our mind. Oh, but I got to go to work. Yep, I get it. You got to go to work. Go to work. But be sure God's on your mind. Be sure you have those times where God saturates your mind, saturates your heart, saturates your soul. What else is God's will? God's will is for us to abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible is full of it. We see sexual immorality all over the place. Sodom and Gomorrah, we see what happened there, right? We see that Solomon, as wise as he was, he wasn't smart enough, right? Because he had 300 wives or 700 wives and 300 concubines that took him away from the Lord. We see sexual immorality everywhere. King David, right? We see where Paul in Corinthians, where there's a man who has his father's wife, and Paul says in there, to flee sexual immorality. This is the will of God. First Thessalonians says this in chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. It doesn't get any simpler than this. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you know how to possess your body. This is the will of God. How do we know where this is? It's in Scripture. It's in the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, it is sola scriptura. It is the scriptures alone that reveal our sinfulness. It is the scriptures alone that tell us of our deadness. It is the scriptures alone that tell us of God's love for us in his electing love for us. It is the scriptures alone that tell us of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is the scriptures alone that show us this irresistible grace that invades your heart as God draws you to him. And it is the scriptures alone that we persevere in our faith to the end. The Bible truly is the light to our paths and a lamp unto our feet. May we cherish it. May we adore it. May we bathe our lives in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. May all this be true of us, Lord. May your word be sweet as the honeycomb to us. May it be a light to our paths and a lamp to our feet. May we see, Father, the authority in your word, the inerrancy of your word, and may we see that your word is sufficient for every aspect of our lives. Father, help us to hold fast to your word as Jesus says that he is your word. Lord, may we hold 